0: good morning to all ukrainians lately there has been a lot of fake information online
1: that i called on our army to lay down arms and to evacuate listen i am here we will not lay down our weapons we will defend our state
2: because our weapons are our truth and the truth is that this is our land
1: our country our children, and we will defend all of that. That's all I wanted to tell you. Glory to Ukraine.
3: That was Ukrainian President Zelensky on Saturday, bravely walking in the streets of the besieged capital of Kyiv, standing defiant as Russian forces close in, bombarding the city and leaving a trail of death and destruction in their wake. Zelensky's refusal to back down in the face of Vladimir Putin's aggression is being seen throughout the world as an inspiring David versus Goliath battle that may yet end tragically for him and his country, but much depends on what is conceivably going on inside the head of Goliath. Why is Putin doing this? What does he really want? And what, if anything, can the West do to stop him? We'll talk to two renowned experts on Putin's Russia and Zelensky's Ukraine, Catherine Belton, a special correspondent for Reuters and the author of the book Putin's People, and Nina Khrushcheva, a professor of international relations at the New School and the great-granddaughter of another Russian leader, the late Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Well, to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me
1: God. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God.
3: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative
4: Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice.
3: So I got to say, it is really hard not to be inspired. inspired by Zelensky's, you know, standing up almost Churchillian to uh, Russian aggression here. It is, uh, you know, it's something I don't think anybody really expected. Zelensky, we knew him from, uh, you know, he gets elected. He's a a comedian who gets elected president, suddenly finds himself in the middle of an impeachment battle in the United States over his uh, phone call with Donald Trump, and now faced with Russian aggression on this country. The United States keeps offering to evacuate him, let him leave, set up maybe a uh, a government in exile somewhere. And instead, he is standing firm and tall. And um, we'll see how this uh, plays out. But man, it is a, a pretty brave stance by this guy.
1: You know, sometimes it's the performer politicians that are Able to communicate best in these kinds of very, very difficult times. And of course, Zelensky was an entertainer. I looked at that video this morning and I thought it was uh, incredibly powerful. He could have been sitting behind a desk, you know, showing that uh, he was still in command in the presidential palace or whatever. But no, he was in the streets and he was, uh, it was shot kind of selfie style. And the message was, Well, he literally said, I'm here. The message was, I'm here with you, with the people who are now taking up arms to repel the Russian invader. Really powerful. One other thing I'll say is that a U.S. official told reporters that the U.S. had offered to evacuate Zelensky um, from Ukraine. And Zelensky's response apparently was, I need tank ammunition, not a ride. So this is this is our weapons you know, are
3: our truth he our says our weapons are, so this video. is i i yeah. think
1: feeling like a kind of leadership moment that will go down in 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 history but we'll see what happens
4: and for someone who's is obsessed with with the cult of personality as Putin is, this must be one of the most infuriating outcomes of his invasion of Ukraine, which is the elevation of Zelensky to the status of world hero. It must get under Putin's skin almost as much as anything else that's happened over the course of the last few months.
3: Yeah. But the key question is, you know, how does Putin respond to that? I mean, does he take a message? Is he humbled or more likely, does it just, you know, make him more defiant, uh, determined to crush Ukraine and crush Zelensky? I mean, I... I did an interview on Friday in which I was asking, you know, do, did I think that Russian uh, special forces were going to assassinate Zelensky, as has been suggested? And I said, you know, I, that struck me as Perhaps a bridge too far. It would just be too shocking for the world community. But at this point, you know, a day later, I'm not sure I was right about that. Zelensky, by standing up to Putin, could well have made himself a uh, a target.
1: Yeah, and assassinations are right out of the Putin. Um, <laughs> He's shown no Russian, compunction in uh, doing it over the but, years. Yeah, right? but what's what what's so unsettling about the situation is what you just said, Mike, which is that he is defying expectations. He is sh- surprising and shocking people on a daily basis. Um, You're talking about that, Putin here. Putin, talking yeah. about Putin. That raises right. the question, are there really any any limits here? And the sense of Putin was always that, um, you know, he was very aggressive uh, but controlled, that, you know, he was a cunning leader who was extremely disciplined um, at the end of the day. And... Um, it's hard to to know if that's still true about him and that's a little scary. Yeah.
3: I mean, you look at what, I mean, his speeches over this past week uh, in which, you know, he like lays out his historical grievances over Western aggression and, you know, the expansion of NATO and U.S. invasion of Iraq and the West military intervention in Libya. And, you know, it's like he's got this storehouse of historical grievances that are, you know, upset that he's obsessed over. And, you know, at some point when you listen to him, you know, extend, you know, an extended talking, I mean, it seems deranged, Uh, you know, just like, are we dealing with a madman here?
4: I just want to point out, and this is kind of for the long term, that even while we're focused rightly, on the the battle in Kiev. And I have to say, one of the more startling uh, headlines I've seen in recent memory, I I thought I was all of a sudden taken back to World War II, was the New York Times banner headline Battle for Kiev that they posted last night. But even as we're focused intently on that, I think it's important not to lose sight of the spillover effects and the knock-on effects. Of that war. The war regarding sanctions and the economic war between the West and Russia is really just beginning right now. The cyber war is unfolding slowly but surely. This is something that is far greater than I think just watching what's going on in Kyiv really gives us a, a insight into.
3: Yeah. I mean, what you always worry about in wars or limited wars is things can. Been out of control, and you know, there's certainly uh, this seems to there seems to be a recipe for that. But look, we've got two great guests to talk about all this: Catherine Belton, who knows as much about Putin as anybody, and uh, Nina Khrushcheva. So let's get to it. Okay, and we now have with us Catherine Belton, special correspondent for Reuters, based in London, and author of the excellent book, Putin's People. Catherine, welcome back to Skullduggery.
0: Hi, thanks for having me on.
3: So extraordinary time and extraordinary events going on. You have dug into Vladimir Putin's past and also his cronies and the oligarchs. The United States and its Western allies are trying to deter Putin with imposing ever harsher sanctions. Just on Friday, they announced that they were going to sanction, or the United States did, Putin and Foreign Minister Lavrov directly. Is any of this having any impact or effect on the Kremlin?
0: I'm afraid it's not, clearly not having too much impact on Putin's own calculus. And I guess the the question is really, to what degree is he now just acting all by himself? Because I actually can't imagine for an instance that his decision to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine was supported by a majority of his own top officials. And you could see that on their faces when he held that Security Council meeting on Monday. You could see the fear in their eyes and that really they didn't want to be there. They all looked deeply uncomfortable and I think for many in Moscow Putin's actions this week have come as a great shock I think many were preparing for him to maybe yes recognize the independence of Donetsk and Lugansk because already since 2015 de facto they'd been independent anyway they were held by separatists backed by the Kremlin and this was just making a de facto situation de jure and it would have allowed Putin to kind of walk out, he'd taken a yet another little slice of Ukraine. He could continue to perhaps menace from the borders and threaten Zelensky in an attempt to gain concessions from Zelensky and maybe from NATO on, on missile shields and, and so on. No one expected him to go this far. And you can see that in the reaction of the Russian stock market, for instance, most uh, most of Russian big business and investment. also didn't expect this huge invasion. You saw the Moscow market collapse uh, by 45%. It lost half its value immediately after the invasion. No one was expecting it.
1: So Catherine, the fact that the people around him are so surprised suggests that Putin has changed in some fundamental way, that there's been some shift here. And people talk about him being increasingly isolated, because of COVID or perhaps other reasons, obsessed with history, operating in a kind of bubble. How did that happen? Why do you think it happened? And um, obviously, we, we may now know the implications of that. But tell us about that change in Putin and how you perceive it.
0: Yeah, I wish I knew the answer to it, and it's the answer that it's what everyone's trying to scrabble around and and guess at, including sort of quite high-placed officials in Moscow who really don't understand what's changed, but we can only presume it's the last 10 years, two years, sorry, of the pandemic, where he has been increasingly isolated, and as you say, he has become consumed by history and his place as the restorer of the Russian lands. We always knew that he placed a very special emphasis on kind of restoring Russia's greatness and restoring its imperial past. We also kn- knew that even from 1992, when he gave his first ever interview as a as the deputy mayor of Saint Petersburg, that even then he was suggesting that Ukraine uh, wasn't a real country. Even then, he was blaming the Bolshevik revolutionaries, as he did in his speech on Monday, for creating an artificial republic and for essentially laying a, a landmine under the empire for the nationalism that we that we saw at the Soviet Union collapse and sort of what what, what he says we're, we're seeing today he doesn't believe that Ukraine should exist he believes it should be part of the Russian empire but we've seen him always before no matter what he's done these sort of terrible acts that have accompanied his accumulation of power we've always seen him act perhaps wrongly and terribly, but always with a degree of cool rationality that he's acted in a covert manner. I mean, for instance, in 2014, when he annexed Crimea, that was conducted through the little green men who he denied had anything to do with the Russian military. He knew he had broad support there among the Russian speaking population of Crimea, that they were able to take it without almost a shot being fired. He didn't have to kill anyone. And then in the referendum in which the annexation was approved, he did have overwhelming support from the population there again he didn't have to kill anyone and at the same time there was also a big russian troop buildup on the borders with ukraine and people then were fearing a broader invasion but he stepped back from that because he was still a rational actor uh, in some ways he knew that he would face a massive backlash from the west and he also knew he did not have the support among the ukrainian population and it seems what has changed over the last t- two years is he's become increasingly isolated He's lost touch with reality. I mean, it really seems that he thought maybe the Ukrainians would just back down very early on. Maybe he's got the vision of the Afghan president fleeing from his country at the first sign of the Taliban in mind. Maybe he thought Zelensky was going to do the same. But it certainly seems he didn't expect such resistance. And he didn't expect, I think, such a a strong response from, from the Western world, because Russia's economy is now going to be devastated. And it's getting cut off from all the cultural ties. I mean, so many uh, Russians are completely devastated by what's happened.
4: Do you think Ukraine is the end of his kind of, let's call it descent into madness? Or is, is Ukraine the end of this? Or is there what's
0: next? I guess we've got to we've got to hope so and the signs are hopefully I mean the stronger resistance that Ukraine can put up the stronger the resistance from the west will hopefully mean that this is the end that it is his waterloo and uh, it will lead to his toppling you know I guess we have to see uh, how long can President Zelensky withstand the Russian forces we have to see whether the US and the rest of the western allies will now escalate uh, their response because at the moment I, I I think we're only seeing the beginning of the impact of the sanctions that were launched earlier this week. So the sanctions against Sparebank against VTB, barring them from uh, conducting any dollar transactions, they're pretty tough. We're already seeing signs of a run of the on the banks, but the central bank, Russia's central bank, has clearly made some quite strong interventions in the market to prop up the ruble and to keep things stable for now. But quite how long it can continue to do so is another question because this. As long as it goes on, it will continue to chip away and banks are having problems making payments all over the places. And there are queues at the banks with people trying to withdraw money. So I guess we have to see, I think if the US as is being suggested and discussed today, goes ahead and uh, sanctions Russia's central bank, that's, yeah, that's going to wipe out a huge chunk of Russia's hard currency reserves and is potentially devastating. And you would have to hope that that would be a very, very strong deterrent against Putin ever considering going any further than what he has. And I, you know, I continue to hold out hope that perhaps he'll just stop now and realize that he's made a mistake. But I've just been speaking to one Moscow businessman who's pretty well connected and says that's not possible. He can't stop back now. He's crossed the Rubicon. He would completely lose face.
4: Let me just follow up, because Putin still has cards in his hand, especially regarding some of the economic sanctions. Uh, he has the ability to kind of counter retaliate against the Western world. What are the odds, do you think, that he's going to kind of engage in those strongly disruptive retaliatory actions regarding you know, energy and the other mineral reserves that Russia and Ukraine have the power over, and, and in addition, obviously, the, the wheat and agricultural power that, the, that Ukraine and Russia has?
0: You know I'm I'm not sure and I think at the moment Putin is is scrambling a little bit he hasn't decided himself how he's going to react because again I think he's facing much stiffer resistance from Ukraine than he expected and much stronger resistance from the west as well so I think he he wasn't expecting to face so much trouble I think he he didn't think that this was going to provoke such a strong response so I think he he hasn't decided what he's going to do I think they had a a kind of plan perhaps that they might sort of be able to muddle through the Western sanctions. They've been creating their own alternative to SWIFT. For instance, the, the the Russia had created its own system, and I was told that in response to the sanctioning, the barring of the biggest state. Banks from conducting any dollar transactions that uh, the Russian central bank have been working on developing a program for correspondent accounts with the Chinese. But that appears not to be working because already there was news yesterday that some very big Chinese banks were refusing to carry out Russian uh, dollar transactions, Russian dollar contracts, and they don't have the support from the Chinese that they expected. So I think Putin is, you know, he's finding his way. We don't know what he's going to do. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm not sure any of his uh, closest officials are, are able to put up any resistance because we all, again, we all saw how f- fearful they were of him during that Security Council meeting. And I think they just have to blindly follow orders and, and tell him what he wants to hear, which is why we've reached this current juncture in the first place. So I don't know, but I just hope that there's someone there who's able to talk some sense to into him because surely any escalation will just make things worse. But yes, as, as you say, he does have some tricks up his sleeve. He could, for instance, sort of stop exports of titanium to uh, the West. And Boeing is a big uh, importer of Russian titanium. It needs it for to build its aircraft. That could be one thing that he, do, he could do. I really doubt that he would cut off oil and gas supplies into Europe and the rest of the West, because that would be kind of like cutting off his nose to spite his face. He wouldn't have much income left. Of course, he could direct more China's way, but he wouldn't get a very good price for it.
3: Catherine, I have to say your description of that National Security Council meeting with Putin addressing it and the, the Putin advisors being startled and unnerved by what he was saying is pretty scary because it raises the prospect, maybe it doesn't. it's not a prospect, it's the reality that we are dealing with an isolated megalomaniac in charge of a nuclear power running amok and with nobody able to stop him. I'm just wondering, you know the people, or no? you've reported on for years, the people around Putin, the Slovaki, Slovaki, do I pronounce that correctly? Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Petrushev, Bortnikov, the head of the FSB. Do you see any indication that any of those close Putin advisors are actually breaking from him or, you know, are not on board with what he's trying to do here?
0: You know, I would doubt that uh, Nikolai patrishov the head of the Security Council itself, or uh, Bordnikov, the head of the FSB, uh, weren't on board with this plan. I think of any of his advisors, they would be the ones. It's, I guess it's patrishov who's always been the lead, leading ideologue of and of using capitalism as a tool to undermine the West, to, ca- to buy off and corrupt officials and so on. And he's certainly uh, very much painted the West as a hostile enemy of Russia and, and so, something which is kind of debauched and decrepit and it is time to attack so I think possibly they would be on board with it but I think the rest would not and I think you could see that also in the eyes of Sergei Naryshkin his foreign intelligence chief who Putin was very sharply reprimanding for not speaking clearly or kind of fluffing his lines about the recognizing the independence of Donetsk and Lugansk so I think there's a very close uh, core of security officials who might support this, but uh, right now the impact on the economy is so deep that I would think even uh, officials like Igor Sechin, who is seen as another major hawk of his inner circle, would be terribly approving of this, because Sechin now runs Rosneft, which is the Kremlin oil champion. BP had a 20% stake in Rosneft, and they're now coming under fire from the UK government. They might have to withdraw from that project quite They do that. I'm not really sure, but I think Setchin, who has made quite considerable personal fortune out of his dealings with Rosneft, is is probably going to be wondering whether this is. I have to say one quick
3: question. I I, we were talking about Bortnikov before. I noticed the other day that the Treasury Department, among its sanctions, were actually targeting one of his children in the West, and I saw that as the first step. For a rollout of additional sanctions going after Putin's kids, his daughters in particular were supposed to have, you know, bank accounts in Latvia and other financial institutions outside of Russia. But we haven't seen that. We you know, they sanctioned Putin, but Putin doesn't have any known assets in the West that could be seized. Why aren't
0: they going after his kids? I don't know. I think that would be the obviously a very good next step, possibly. Um, I think that's something that would really hurt Putin. I think he has he always resisted any kind of public mentioning of his children, his family. He's always had to try to shield them from public view, and it's something that he's very, very sensitive about.
1: Could that be a bridge too far? I mean, could that provoke him in ways that maybe we don't, would not be in our interests, kind of poking the bear?
0: It is like poking the bear. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Catherine, I want to ask you about Putin's rhetoric, which has seemed fairly over the top recently. And one line in particular jumped out at me when he he just, I think yesterday, uh, referred to the Zelensky government as a band of drug addicts and neo-Nazis. I mean, clearly that is not true. <laughs> Are these the ravings of a madman, or is there a method to this kind of rhetoric? What's he, what's he up to here with that kind of language?
0: You know, I'm at the stage where I don't know whether he really truly believes his own Kool-Aid about this. Um, we know that they used this rhetoric before in 2014, and when they launched the proxy war for Donetsk and Lugansk uh, through sending the kind of the Kremlin-backed separatists in uh, to covertly uh, help uh, destroy and take over those republics. Um, so back then, there was a lot of rhetoric coming out of the Russian Foreign Ministry that the you know that the need to defeat these these neo-Nazis who were committing atrocities. There was a huge uh, fire in Odessa, which was blamed on uh, these neo-Nazi groups. Um, So we've we have seen this before, but it's again, it's really stretches belief that that Putin can somehow be convinced of this because we all know Zelensky is Jewish. So how can the country be being run by a bunch of neo-Nazis and how can he even begin to believe that? beyond me Um, but he's seen that rhetoric work before in 2014 2015 and it was to a large degree then swallowed and believed by uh, a lot of the Russian population but in those days it wasn't accompanied by the same kind of complete tearing up of international law and disregard and killing of, of human life and there's so many Russians who have relatives in Ukraine and they just can't believe what's going on. So
4: I want to circle back to something that you said in answer to one of our earlier questions about the sanctions, and that is the the way the Chinese are treating uh, Russian bank efforts to conduct transactions in U.S. dollars. In last night's UN Security Council vote, three countries abstained, China, India, and UAE. Are they possible intermediaries? Is there any chance that we get out of this through the, uh, the work of countries like China, India, and the UAE.
0: I think, uh, I'm not sure Putin would respect anyone from India or the UAE. Unfortunately, I think he he has uh, paid quite close adherence to uh, President Xi. And it was very clear to see that he did not uh, take any military action in Ukraine while China was hosting the Winter Olympics. And there've been reports previously that he'd been specifically requested by President Xi to do that. But whether the West can rely on President Xi to broker Uh, uh, any type of deal with Putin is another question because of course Xi is going to be acting in his own interests. so I don't know but from what I can see from the Chinese response is that it's you know I don't think they're embracing this or wholeheartedly supporting it in any way Uh, the Chinese are very subtle and they don't like these huge uh, destabilizations these kind of massive rocking of, of the global security architecture that we're seeing now
3: Catherine, as you look at the historical arc of this crisis from 2014, the annexation of Crimea, little green men, the U.S. and West imposes sanctions, business goes on. 2016, you know, Putin launches this blatant intervention in the American presidential election. The U.S. imposes sanctions, kicks out diplomats. You know, business goes on to today with this invasion. As you look at that, were there things the United States, the UK, the West could have, should have done that would have stopped us from getting to this point? Or was it inevitable? (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's the other gazillion dollar question you know i think everyone always wanted to to hope for the best and yes there were many uh apologists for putin's behavior over crimea and the hybrid war in donetsk and lugansk there were many apologists over the interference in, in the u.s election on the least donald trump himself you know i think probably putin was banking on a very weak and divided west that he'd been seen he he thought he made great inroads into Western society. We all know that Gerhard Schroeder, the former German chancellor, has salaries now f- from his positions on three state. Russian Pretty lucrative
3: stick- salaries, if yeah. I recall correctly. Uh,
0: and you know, and there's there's been sort of widespread within German society acceptance and a, a kind of a, a real willingness to try and understand his actions and, and so on. So and and you can of course paint a convincing argument for why Putin should feel a grievance over NATO's continued eastward expansion. Um, I think in particular, we should perhaps uh, view with understanding his uh, grievance over the anti-missile defense shields that are being placed very, very close to his borders. There's a new one that's just opened up in Poland, for instance, which is only 100 miles from the Russian border. The Russians don't know whether, uh, it's not just for defensive missiles, it could be used for uh, missiles to attack Russia. The US has always claimed that these Defence shields are aimed at missiles from Iran and elsewhere, but they're certainly very, very close to Russia, and they could knock out any strike capacity of Russia. So I think there has been, you know, it's kind of it's a really mixed bag from the Western reaction. There's been a lot of acquiescence and apologists for previous actions, but there's also been a certain arrogance and a disdain for. Uh, Putin and for Russia that it's seen as a a weak economic basket case that right up till 2016 and the interference in the US elections, I think there was this blindness that Russia could ever pose a security threat to the West. And there was just, you know, this arrogance and this kind of, you know, these plans had a momentum of their own and no one ever listened to, in particular, the grievance over the missile defense shields. And I think I'm sure if Putin had just, you know, step back from the brink and maybe, yeah, I think he deserved to be sanctioned harshly for taking yet another slice of a, a, a neighboring country's territory in Donetsk and Lugansk, but, you know, but they had all were already for the past five, six years been separatist territories. So if he'd stop there, Maybe there could have been some movement backwards with the, the Polish uh, missile site. Maybe there the could have been a, a way to kind of agree, at least kind of some can some redraw, not a complete redrawing, but at least some agreements that would perhaps address some of his concerns. But I think there has been a blindness on to some degree in the West.
1: Catherine, you talk about Putin's grievances and. Um... I thought maybe to wrap up, because I know you have to go, we interviewed you before on this podcast about a formative time very early in his career as mm-hmm. a KGB agent, when he was in Dresden, when the Berlin Wall fell, and I think he faced a mob outside, he asked some Soviet unit for help. And the word comes back, you know, Moscow is silent. um, And that was devastating to him. Kind of a rosebud moment. How important, looking at what's happening now and looking back to that moment, how important was that for him in terms of shaping his views of of the world and of Russia and um, all of these sort of historical forces that he's consumed with?
0: Yeah, I think it's clear it had this sort of tremendous impact on him that has stayed with him forever afterwards I mean his description of it in his first interview about this in 2000 in, in the months before he was elected as, as president you know it was so graphic it was so vivid you can see that this was a really really important moment for him he so he described how he was calling the nearby Soviet military base asking for backup against the protesters surrounding his his villa they said we can't do anything uh, without Moscow's uh, say so in Moscow is is silent and he 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 basically said you know it was it was as if we'd given up our position in Europe he said I understood that uh, this position could not be based on walls but I wanted something different to be proposed instead to replace it but nothing was proposed and that's what hurt and it seems that he's carried this wound around with him somehow ever since um, but. Still, we never believed that this was a wound that he would seek to act on in this way, in a way that is so destructive for his own economy and so ultimately going to be destructive for his own position in the Kremlin, because I I can't believe that he can withstand uh, the eventual backlash that, that will come from his own population.
3: Well, Catherine, I want to thank you once again for your keen insights into uh, you know, this uh, enigma of Vladimir Putin. Uh, and I should tell all our listeners once again that if they want to try to understand Vladimir Putin and his mentality, they can't do better than reading Catherine's book, Putin's People. Thanks for joining us.
0: Great. Thank you so much for having me on.
3: We are now joined by Nina Khrushcheva, a professor of international relations at the New School in New York, and also the great-granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev, the former Soviet premier. Nina, welcome to uh, Skullduggery. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. So everybody is quite baffled and shocked by what Vladimir Putin has done this week. And in addition to, you know, this egregious military invasion of a sovereign country is his historical grievances and his claims about Ukraine being ancestral Russian land. What should we make of Putin's arguments justifying what he is doing right now in Ukraine.
2: Well, I'm glad you invited me, but I'm probably not, not the best person because for three months I was arguing that there's just no way this can happen because Putin is a gambler, but he's a very careful one. He's calculating. He doesn't, as I was saying, he doesn't bite more than he can chew. And going on Kiev would be just the most suicidal thing that one can imagine because and we're already seeing it because there's a great resistance there. And nobody or anybody who knows anything about Ukrainians, especially their actions, anti-Nazi actions in World War II, should know that they are not going to get occupied easily. So I am wrong and been wrong. You're not the only one on this. Right? Well, but no, I'm but, you know, I've the reason I am particularly wrong is because I've always felt that people say, well, we don't understand Putin. He's such an enigma. ah, yeah, please. He's very clear to me. I mean, I've, he's never done anything that I couldn't have predicted. So I could not have predicted that. So it does seem that he just gone mad very quickly or. It's a post-COVID syndrome. You know, some people take off their masks and beat up a flight attendant, and he just went to bomb the whole country after two years being in a bunker or somewhere. But I think, I mean, you know, jokes aside, because it's really not a joking matter, I mean, his justification of, I, I, I can't even call it a justification because this is some sort of a Stalinesque Mao esque mythology of what the world is according to Putin or according to Stalin or according to Mao or according to all those fascists that we've been experiencing. It is, I mean, it is an ancestral land. This is a pro Kievan Rus was a proto state of both Russia and Ukraine. So that is not incorrect, but it has since then become a separate independent nation, separate independent entity. I mean, it is a bl- brotherly Slavic nation like the Belarusians, but it's not the same country. It's not the same nation. It's not the same people. It's not the same language. In fact, I would actually easily understand Polish that I understand Ukrainian. I mean, I understand some Ukrainian, but it's not absolutely not the same language. So that's a very convenient imperial mythology that you know predecessors of putin many you know the greats that he likes to see himself have been putting forward so that's one thing
3: can i ask I, what you make of his uh, arguments uh, blaming the bolsheviks for creating ukraine as a uh, soviet independent as a independent i'm using air quotes here soviet republic in 1919 and then blaming your great grandfather for giving away Crimea to Ukraine back in 1954. I just walk us through right. what you, those two historical oh, arguments right, that right. Putin has And used.
2: actually that's that's something exactly because I was just going to say that as well because it seems that sort of the political mind of Putin is now gone. He's no longer that's what I mean by Mao and It's no longer sort of a realistic political formulation of things. It's a historical one. And so that's a great question, because I think he's justifying all this in historical terms. I mean, he is one of those greats, Vladimir the Great, who baptized Kiev and Rus in uh, made it Christian in the 1800s. And he almost, it, not almost, I'm sure he feels himself and he said it, actually, a successor of all these greats before him. One time he said that Catherine the Great, and in fact, she is the one who took the territories of Crimea and they were, it is her legacy. And one time he said that he prefers Catherine the Great, even to Peter the Great, because she she shed less blood, but she took over more territory. So she is his hero. And that sort of brings to the Soviet part because Putin thinks of himself as that historic, historical grand figure. He doesn't like the Soviet Union, of course, because the empire with tsars and more gold and more palaces was better than the Soviet empire. But he'd take any empire because for him, this is all sort of a historical process of, of great Russia. And that's why he blames Lenin for uh, sort of not keeping these republics within the Soviet Union, but actually giving them technically the right for self-determination. That's what he's upset about. I mean, he would have no problem of The Soviet Union would turn into back into the Russian Empire, that would be fine. So, that's what his pet peeve with the Bolsheviks is that they actually had the sole determination clause that ultimately played out in 91 when the Soviet Union collapsed, and that upsets him. As for the territories, it is because they were part of the empire, and you know, they were, and then Ukraine as a republic expanded for random reasons, and Lenin took Nevorossiya, as Putin complains all the time, and brought it into Ukraine rather than it was no longer part of Russia. Then Stalin added some parts to Ukraine. Then, of course, Khrushchev, which is a huge myth, by the way, because Khrushchev in 1954 was essentially nobody comparing to other important figures, uh, such as Georgi Malenkov, or uh, Clement Varashilov and others who were in charge of the government, because Khrushchev at the time was only in charge of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. But it was, I mean, Crimea was one of his ideas, but it wasn't his doing and it wasn't his decision. So, but it's very easy to blame Khrushchev because he's sort of the anti-hero of the whole Russian strongman Kremlin persona because he was essentially, they consider him a, a fool who, you know, tried to talk to the Americans, it didn't work out, did the Cuban missile crisis and all those other things. So he was an easy fall for them to blame. And now Putin, I think his, his, his mandate, it feels like, not a political one, but a historical one, that he's uniting, uh, especially uniting the Slavic lands, the proto-Slavic state that has been a dream of many, many Russian nationalists philosophers that Putin likes very much.
1: So Nina, I've been trying, throughout this crisis, I've been trying to understand, as we all have, Putin's motivations. And I guess the question I have is, how much of it is ideology and how much of it is power? I mean, we've been talking here about how he's driven by these historical grievances, maybe delusions of of grandeur uh, to be one of the great Russian figures and, and reconstitute the empire. On the other hand, I think you quoted in a recent piece Mao's line about power flowing from the barrel of a gun. And, you know, certainly you hear people talking about his real problem with Ukraine is to have a uh, Western-looking democratic state on his border that's had color revolutions. So which is it, or is it a combination of the two? And just talk about that kind of divide between ideology and, and power.
2: Well I think it's a combination of a lot of things I don't even I don't even think it's a combination of ideology or something I think it's more I mean, in some ways, what Putin is now fighting with the Ukraine is a proxy war with the United States. I mean, it is unfortunate it's on the border with, with Russia because, I mean, it's proxy wars are always unfortunate, but before at least they were, not at least, I, I don't even know how to better say it, they were elsewhere, but now they're just right there in the middle of Europe. So it is the battle of the wills, is that if uh, you don't allow me to have my sphere of influence and uh, you, America, have spheres of influence everywhere, you meddle in everybody's life and every everybody's state. So I'm going to do the same. Uh, This is one of those power things that I'm a great power and you've never been in, you really recognize it. So let me show you uh, the way I think you show the world. I think also there is fear, certainly because in his understanding, uh, and there've been evidence to that, that if Americans don't like dictators, just you know, it can take them out. He doesn't like that because it's not even so much about the color revolution in Ukraine per se is that if Ukraine has all these color revolutions and sides with the United States and the United States is in Ukraine and then they don't like Putin, they cross the border, they take him out and he just doesn't want that to happen. And for somebody like him, it is a reasonably legitimate concern. I mean, these things can happen. So what he's doing right now, in addition to many other crazy things, is that he's essentially taking out the leader he doesn't like, thinking that that's if America can do these things. So why not declare uh, Vladimir Zelensky a fascist, a Nazi? He's a Jewish man, incidentally, and uh, then make that kind of argument and make this kind of action. So I think that also drives him in addition to many other grievances and and kind of. So in his mind, despite all this historical grandeur, it's also a reasonably logical explanation given in his mind what the United States can do elsewhere. So if they can do it. And that has been argument all along is that when Barack Obama, remember when Barack Obama said to him, uh, well, he's nothing but a regional power and then all. Crab broke loose because it's like, okay, I'm gonna show you what I can do as a regional power. And now his message is, this is my region, get out of my region. And if I'm going to be ruthless, brutal, megalomaniac, I'm just going to be that because it is justified. It is something that that that's the only way I can make my point across.
4: Let me ask you a question about kind of the internal politics in Russia right now. In the last few days, we've seen evidence of street protests and there's been, you know, kind of reporting on small elites in the entertainment and media business protesting or or contesting this decision. Is this decision to invade Ukraine going to have any sort of internal impact for him?
2: Well, Probably, but I don't think it's 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 hard to predict because when in uh, I actually thought he would stop with recognizing Donetsk and Luhansk and just say fine, you know, we've done that. Nobody cares about these regions. Actually, Vladimir Zelensky would be happy to get rid of them, and it would be wonderful if Putin forcefully take it from him so he wouldn't have to deal with any of this. Mm. But clearly he did not. And then the the numbers came out and nobody cared about them in Russia. And suddenly the the poll numbers came out and 73% of the Russians supposedly support this. So that is clearly doctored numbers. So that's clearly a message to those. If you don't support it, you know that another 73% support it. So he thought, I think, that uh, like with Crimea, because it was a huge support for that at the time, they can make an argument of those Nazis in Kiev, uh, bring World War II into the conversation, which by the way is insane because you're doing, you're using fascist methods except against people who fought with you against the fascism. So he thought that he would sell that and it clearly didn't work. So what they're doing now is they are suggesting these people are traitors. There was already, uh, I mean, the 1,500 people already got arrested or somehow noted for their disloyalty to the state. They've been conversation about, uh, you know, expropriating property for for objection and whatnot. So they, it, it, when Rus- Russians went to the streets on the, in 2012 against Putin's reelection or whatever that was, the new presidential term, and then they, got sur- they surrendered. And it is possible that they surrender this time although they may not. and But then it will become an, an incredibly bloody internal process because we we'll go to the streets. I mean, Russians would go to the streets. They were beaten up. So that would be one of those 1956, 1960, uh, in, in Hungary, 1968, in Czechoslovakia, um, the... Um, post-Soviet or around 89, 91 and so on, uh, the 2004 Orange Revolution in Ukraine and so on, this, this would be a very bloody process. So it is possible that ultimately he would be able to put everybody under the thumb.
4: Yet yeah, it does seem that, you know, he has in the, in the last few years, you know, poisoned his leading political opponent, poisoned and jailed his leading political opponent uh, in the last few days. He's shut down access to Facebook within Russia. The propaganda campaign that's aimed internally within Russia seems to be extraordinarily strong. You know, looking at it from the outside, it feels like the opposition to Putin is really is really beaten. And yet it sounds like you feel like there maybe are still some glimmers there.
2: Well, it was beaten, certainly when Alexei Navalny was jailed. and I was in Moscow at the time, so we would go to those protests in January when Navalny returned from Germany and was just arrested. And uh, three times we went, and then suddenly everybody was declared disloyal, and those protests essentially stopped. So that's something that happened. I don't know if it, I mean, yes, in fact, even the information until I think two days ago or a day ago, even Russians didn't even know that uh, that the troops are going into Kiev because the whole thing was framed as we are defending, uh, we, the Russian troops, defend Donetsk and Luhansk. And it's not an occupation, it's a special operation, sort of this Orwellian language suddenly came back and became, and became uh, pervasive again. So it is possible, but I don't, what I was seeing, I, I, I don't know if you, I don't remember if you hear the, 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 uh, footage of the Russian Security Council was shown when yes. it was, okay, so it was shown. That was an amazing meeting when he was sitting at his giant table and they're sitting like all these apparatus is sitting like school children. Then they um, they obediently march to the podium and say ba 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 And one of them, uh Sergei Naryshkin, who is the clandestine chief and, you know, was actually positioned to take over Sergei Lavrov's job as a foreign minister. Suddenly we see that he couldn't even contain, he was terrified and couldn't contain his objection. And then Putin scolded him for not being patriotic enough. So they're afraid. I mean, they are the ones who actually can take them out. And they've been also, you know, Putin poisons, but there've been a lot of history in the in the Kremlin Palace or in St. Petersburg Palace, whatever you tars, wherever they lived of Tsars uh, of being taken out. I mean, that has happened before. And so that's why I was told he's sitting at this giant tables all the time. It's not because of COVID, it's because he's terrified that somebody would use a sniff box as one of the Tsars in many previous centuries and just and just make it and end the whole thing.
1: Yeah, well, I was wondering, I mean, mm-hmm. is, it, yeah, is it conceivable uh, that, Victoria talked about the popular protest in the streets and some elites who have criticized them, ex-generals, is it conceivable to you that the military could turn against him and depose him in a coup?
2: Look, I am terrified of predicting. I don't think it is, but you know, I can be wrong and tomorrow military turns against him. But that has not been, once again, I also look at history to kind of think what's possible. It is maybe possible, maybe they're at that stage. But I don't see evidence of it, but also Russia doesn't have a history of military coups. We do have a history of elite coups, so the Politburo around him can do it. But military, I'm not that sure because they, in fact, that whole address that he did, what yesterday, when he said to the Ukrainian military, do surrender and would be much easier for us to talk to you. Because you know there's a junta in in uh, in the Kremlin, or I'm sorry, in Kiev, then it would be easier for a strongman to strongman to, to discuss. So that's that's a possibility, but I don't see how that military is going to be against Putin. I I, I was thinking actually a lot of people were hoping that. All the sanctions that were promised against the people who dual, have uh, dual citizenship, Abramovich who owns the Chelsea Club in London and all these other people with giant amount of money all over, all over the world will be able to influence him. But in fact, it seems to me that the more they try, the more he's dug in his heels. And I come back to my Stalin Mao thing because I don't think that rational reasoning is not really uh, in the, on the agenda anymore.
3: I mean, it seems to me that the most relevant historical analogy here, one that I don't think Putin even mentioned in either of his talks this week, is Afghanistan. He may achieve his short-term aims, you know, setting up these independent republics, some kind of puppet state in Kiev, but long-term, an insurgency... A war of attrition against Russian occupiers and mounting opposition from the Russian public at home as they see body bags of, of young Russian men being coming back from this bloody conflict. Do you see a potential Afghanistan scenario here for the Russian occupation of Ukraine?
2: Absolutely. Of course. I mean, it is potential Afghanistan occupation, but I think, and he, but he can't mention because for him, Afghanistan is an entirely different story. It's the sort of the Soviet adventurism uh, that may have been justified, but it's somewhere far away. What he's doing, I think, and I said it before and even wrote about this because it's it's one of those Russian things, I guess, Uh, you know, when Vladimir Lenin decided that he's going to Put on earth Karl Marx's philosophical treatise. He's like, oh, okay, we'll just make it happen, you know, sound it reads good, so let's just try it, let's have a revolution, dictatorship of proletariat, that which is not necessarily supposed to be implemented like that. So it does seem that Putin is implementing that dream of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the original, I mean the author of the great book, The Gulag Archipelago but then who turned essentially a rabid nationalist and, and patriot of the Slavic protestate. And so it does seem that Putin is reading his work. He wrote in, I think, in 89, he wrote something called How We Arrange Russia when all this Slavic-speaking or Slavic nations, Belarus, Ukraine, and, and Russia in some parts of Kazakhstan would become that, that pan-Slavic empire. So I think that Putin thinks in historical terms, that is... Blood will be forgotten, whatever the horrors right now will live through. But like Stalin, I mean, you know, the he was now, as you know, in Russia, he's presented as the great manager. I mean, like, okay, well, million here, million there, his own people. But we were we were feared and respected. And so I think that is. Putin's thinking right now. So Afghanistan is a scenario, but he thinks in much grander than you and I sort of political analytical terms. He thinks in great historical terms, how old the think.
3: Last question. What do you make of the Biden administration's response to what Putin is doing?
2: Well, I got into trouble for that, but I continue to think that I think when you are trying to negate, negotiate with an autocrat, you should know not to insult him publicly because if he's baited, he's just going to say, you want me to take Kiev? I'm just gonna do it because by now I have nothing to lose. I'm already embarrassed enough and humiliated enough. And I think his his militaristic part of the brain just went an override. I'm not saying he wouldn't have done it otherwise, but I think if the diplomacy, like it was during the Cuban Missile Crisis with Kennedy and Khrushchev. I mean, once, once, once they decide that it's too dangerous, they just stop speaking publicly and started talking to each other. And I think, it could have been a better a better way. I am not blaming the blight. I mean, I'm not putting any blame because provocation is not a threat. And therefore, they're not responsible for what Putin has done. But perhaps it could have been done better diplomatically.
3: All right. Well, Nina Khrushcheva, I want to uh, thank you for your insights. Uh, always valuable. And um, we will want to uh, keep in touch uh, as this uh, crisis continues. Thanks a lot for thank joining you. us. <laughs>